four and five, and um, this is uh, pretty much one picture. Um, it's kind of like if you were trying to describe a play. You know, somebody hadn't seen a play, so you're trying to write to describe it. I think you'd do the very same thing that John did here. What's the first thing you really need to describe as you're trying to describe a play? Exactly. You've got to describe the set, and then you describe the action that takes place. That's what he does. So we're going to read him describe the set, and then we'll see the action. Uh, Chapter 4, verses 1 through 7. I do this all the time. People get used to it eventually. <laughs> I'm not worried about it. After these things I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I heard was like a trumpet speaking with me, saying, Come up here, and I will show you things which must take place after this. Immediately I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne set in heaven, and one sat on the throne. And he who sat there was like a jasper and a sardius stone in appearance, and there was a rainbow around the throne in appearance like an emerald. Around the throne were twenty-four thrones, and on the thrones I saw twenty-four elders sitting clothed in white robes, and they had crowns of gold on their heads. And from the throne proceeded lightnings, thunderings, and voices. Seven lamps of fire were burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. Before the throne there was a sea of glass like crystal, And in the midst of the throne and around the throne were four living creatures full of eyes in front and in back. The first living creature was like a lion. The second living creature was like a calf. The third living creature had a face like a man. And the fourth living creature was like a flying eagle. Alright, so there's a door open to heaven and John is invited up. Not the uh, last time in the book that he will be invited to come up here. But uh, when he comes up to heaven... There is one central focal point, and that is what? The throne. And uh, that's so much the center of everything that happens, not only in this chapter, but from here on out. He sees this throne, and he sees one sitting on the throne. We need to teach and preach more from the perspective of the throne and less than from the perspective of our own needs, feelings, ideas, or whatever. You know, if we could only see things with the throne in the center. And he describes the one sitting on the throne, but he res- there's a lot of restraint in this picture. How does he describe the one sitting on the throne? Like a jasper stone and a sardis. Yeah. So like precious stones, jewels, gems. Beautiful. Breathtaking, perhaps. But he doesn't give some sort of a more personal, physical description. And then he sees everything in its orientation to the throne. You've got the rainbow around the throne. That would have been amazing. And then you've got thrones around the thrones. How many? And who's sitting on them? These elders in white, golden crowns on their heads. Um, uh, 
you know, we, we often wonder more details about who these are and what they mean. Um, these are obviously some sort of beings in heaven, we can say that much. Uh, there are some things about them that might connect them with God's people, like elders, 24, uh, white robes. Um, I personally would prefer viewing these perhaps as angels that are connected with the people of God. You can think other things if you want to. But the fact is, they're on 24 thrones surrounding the throne. And then out from the throne come lightnings and thunders. And Wow, I'm, I can imagine what kind of lightning and thunder you would have seen and heard from the throne. You've got there in front of the throne these seven lamps that are the seven spirits of God. And uh, then you also have, um, there in conjunction with the throne, four living creatures, as opposed to maybe carved creatures. These are, these are living beings, and uh, they have eyes all around. And, and they're each one like a different animal. What animals? Lion. Yeah, lion and yeah. calf and man, man and lion. eagle. So you have perhaps the noblest, the strongest, the wisest, perhaps the swiftest of the uh, creation of God, something like that. Now, these, this picture of these four living creatures, together perhaps with the 8A, really that's kind of where the uh, break is, with the six wings and the eyes everywhere, the, the, the things that are said about these living creatures remind you a lot, kind of a, of a combination between the cherubim of Ezekiel 1 and 10 and the seraphim of Isaiah 6. The truth is, I don't understand that much about the cherubim and the seraphim, let alone these beings. Clearly, we have a lot, there's a lot of celestial creatures that are impressive and majestic that, that I don't know that we have information to give you know, detailed explanations of, it makes me realize there's a whole lot more going on in the spirit world than maybe what we think about. We're so focused on this life. And, and we're kind of these people who are we're very scientifically, technologically oriented. We kind of exalt those things. And things that we don't see, except for electricity or something, we don't tend to put much stock in. You know, we kind of tend to, to downgrade that there is another side to all of this, but there clearly is. And and there are beings that are, I call them spirit beings or celestial beings, angelic beings, uh, that have, have various forms that, that have various names. Evidently there's various functions and ranks and so forth that probably a whole lot more than even what we see here reflected in these passages. But I think the point of all of this is not so much to make us think about these elders or these living creatures, but to really make us think about the greatness of the one who sits on the throne, his centrality to all of this. You know, every part of this picture ultimately really elevates and exalts the one sitting on the throne. And can you imagine being John, being caught up to heaven and seeing this? And this is just the set. Wait till you get to the action. <laughs> Comments and thoughts, Jason. Yeah, these four living creatures in verse eight—they are described as having uh, full of being full of eyes around and within, and just 
seeing what they saw, they were only driven to one thing, and that was to worship. Absolutely. We will make that point in a second, but those who are the closest to God worship and exalt Him. That would not be true of the greatest of men. I dare say that the closest people to Obama, or if your politics are on the other side to Bush or to whoever, you know, probably don't have that much awe and respect for them. You know, you'd see them in their weak moments. You know, you'd hear them saying some dumb things. And and if you were close to them, you probably wouldn't have that kind of respect for them. Or maybe you like a certain movie star or sports figure or whatever, but those who really know them well wouldn't be so amazed by them as what we are. But those who are the closest to God are the ones who most exalt and praise and revere Him. The closer you get to Him, the more you admire Him. Yes? Uh, I really like, appreciate your comment that uh, concerning all these things. Uh, because, you know, you can read people that study Revelations and, and they've got an answer for everything. Okay? This, is what the 20, <laughs> this is what this piece is. And... You know, you, you go back to Daniel and you read some of the prophecies and it says, Daniel says, what does this mean? And the angel says, what well, means this? So you've got this big description here with a very simple explanation. And I think that's the exact same thing like you said. It's a huge, amazing scene, but it's really all there to emphasize the person on the throne. Uh, not all these other little... And, you know, some things they say may be true. They could, you know, you don't know. But but I, I just totally agree with you what you said there. I think it's an excellent one. There's an author that wrote one time that the uh, effort to try to super analyze these things is like trying to unweave the rainbow. You know, part of the effect is seeing the picture. Not necessarily analyzing every detail so much as just seeing what this is all about. And I think we need to have a lot of reverence when we deal with Wow, we're talking about something that's overwhelming. And the major point we need to get is, wow, the one who sits on the throne, he is in charge, he is worthy of worship. And, uh, you know, we tend to think that our little corner of the universe is where it's at. (laughs) Not a bit. You know, everything revolves around the throne, not around us. We need to see that. Other thoughts? Well, let's start seeing the action. Yeah. Yes. Eric, I thought. Eric. Well, it may not be a real thought. Um, <laughs> <laughs> well, we'll see. Pseudo, pseudo second thinking. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> well, I was just thinking about what Kyle said earlier about how, uh, you know, we looked previously in the, in the various churches and how our responsibility is not to the church but to God. And it seems like there's this whole disconnect where he's talking to the churches and all of a sudden we're up here. But in the end, we are in the churches so that we can get here. Absolutely. Yes, you're right. And our purpose here on the earth is to be focused on the throne. We need to be much more God-focused, God-centered, God-exalting. And our one of our biggest problems is we're way too distracted about things that don't matter. 
If we can you imagine John after he saw this? It would change your perspective on everything about this life. And we need to see it with him so that it will. Eight through eleven. And the four beasts had each of them six wings about him, and they were full of eyes within, and they rest not day and night, saying, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, which was, and is, and is to come. And when those beasts give glory and honor and thanks to him that sat on the throne, who liveth forever and ever, the four and twenty elders fall down before him that sat on the throne, and worship him that liveth forever and ever, and cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power, for Thou hast created all things, and for Thy pleasure they are and were created. So trying to envision this, obviously, is what we need to do. This is what John saw. He described the set, and then he describes the action. Now, as he described the set, he described the elders first, then the living creatures. As he describes what they did, he describes the living creatures first, and then the elders. What are the living creatures doing? Giving glory and honor and thanks. And how much are they doing that? They won't cease. Day and night without ceasing. Constant praise for the infinite holiness, the power, and the eternity of God. Holy, holy, holy is a way of emphasizing holiness. You know, it is like saying extremely, very overly holy. Because to triple something is a way in in their language of just intensifying. And so they're constantly doing that. What about the elders? What are they doing? They're worshiping. How are they doing that? Casting down their crowns. Falling down before him and casting their crowns before him. Now, if they've got crowns, you assume what about them? Yeah, they have some kind of royalty, some kind of uh, power. But if they cast their crowns down before him, what are they recognizing? They are under his great power and authority. They are humbling themselves before him. And so, as, as often as the living creatures glorify God, they do. And of course, the living creatures were honoring God day and night without ceasing. So constantly he's seeing these elders bowing down to God and glorifying the one who sits on the throne, saying that he is worthy to receive glory, honor, and power because of his creation. So all the attention in this scene is on the one who sits on the throne. He is to be exalted. He is to be glorified. That's a clue for us. We need to have our attention on the one who sits on the throne. He's the one we need to exalt and glorify. That's the reality. That's what's going on where it counts in the universe. You know, our, 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 our temptation is to become too man-centered. We need more awe of God. We need to praise Him with more fervor. We need to respect Him so much more. 
again, wow, it would be so incredible to have been with John up in heaven and seen and heard this. You know, you just think, there are some things that we admire in this life. There's things that we are amazed by, you know, a great catch in football or something like that. You know, those things just aren't very significant once you've seen this. Comments and questions. Eric. I'm just thinking that each one of those churches, the people have cast their crown before something. It's either God or before Balaam or before... Yes. Uh, but it just amazes me because, you know, when you read verse chapter 4 at the very beginning, you hear about these 24 thrones and you think, wow, these people are important. God must really respect them. And yet... They bow down before God, and if they can do that, and God's given them worthy enough to be there beside Him, I mean, who are we not to bow down before God? Amen. Other thoughts? I'm just wondering if, if these creatures might be in some ways a reference to idolatry, the fact that in, in a lot of these idol temples, these were animals that were common, used in, in idol descriptions, but they were, they were inanimate. But these creatures are animate. They are they, they embody those characteristics that you mentioned, and they are praising God as opposed to these images that the people in this day and time were very accustomed to seeing. Good point. That's good thought. Yeah. Amen. I think that certainly is a lesson. And idolatry obviously has already been dealt with and will be in this book. So good point. This might be to take away from uh, what Scott and you and. You know, the focus obviously is on the throne. Uh, maybe what would be prominent ideas of what these elders represent or what these animals represent? Yeah, I mean, as I suggested, the elders perhaps stand in some way for the people of God, uh, perhaps the living creatures for the uh, rest of the creation of God. I don't know. Um, I've heard people say, you know, you have 12 tribes and you have 12 apostles, right. old and new. Right. Twenty-four seems to be a number associated with the people of God because of that, and the elder, the the white robe. I, I can certainly see there being more of that in the elders. Um, I, I think didn't David also set up twelve or twenty-four courses of priests? That's correct. So the idea of twenty-four is huh. in the scriptures. Yeah, it's 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 associated with the people of God in the Bible. But, but I, I, I would reinforce Scott's point that you know, no matter what we see in those things, you know, it probably is, it's not the main thought. And so it's important for us to keep the main focus where it should be. And, uh, you know, I, I, just, I just think trying to visualize and just trying to come to see more the glory that God has. You know, the greater these creatures are, and they look pretty impressive in their own right. I mean, obviously, if these elders have crowns and white garments, there's something to them, golden crowns, no less. You know, these living creatures, uh, they're pretty impressive with all their wings and eyes and whatever. And, uh, you know, you see somebody or some creature that's very great in its own right. You know, you'd, you'd be impressed if you just saw them. But you look at them and they're glorifying him. Right. This is, uh, I, I just, I mean, having read through this a couple of times, you know, just trying to wrap my mind around what's happening. I mean, do you think this is something that's 
John is picturing that is actually happening now in heaven? Or is this something that is uh, kind of more theoretical that just shows in a man's way we can understand it what is really happening in front of the glorified one that sits on the throne? Does that make a a clear distinction? It does make a clear distinction. Even if it makes any difference. I'm not sure it makes any difference. If I had to vote, I'd vote for this is what's really happening now, but uh, I'm not sure it makes much difference. And And I think, too, it's put into words that we can visualize the best we can. Certainly. But it is so far beyond what is written here that we we can't comprehend. It's hard to comprehend these words on this page to what that really must be like. And and it is so far beyond our ability to understand until we see. The reality must transcend what he's able to express. I do think trying to visualize and trying to kind of put ourselves in John's place really does help. There's a way in which I feel like for people in our generation, we've lost our sense of awe and respect for anything. There's nothing that we really are that impressed by. And we've got to regain that when it comes to the Lord. We need to see these pictures so that we admire Him more, and so that we are just, we, we respect Him. We want to worship Him. Scott? You know, another thing, you know, about interpreting all these different things, I, I try to keep in mind, this was sent to these congregations. And when they read this, did they think, oh, 12 apostles and 12 tribes of Israel? Is that what came to their mind? You know, I just don't think so. <laughs> I think they thought, wow, that's amazing, like like you said. And so while you can make some figures fit different things, is that really what they were thinking of? You know? And yeah, and I'm not... Maybe, you know, I, I'm not saying they didn't, but I, I just have a hard time seeing it. Yeah, I'm not sure we ought to necessarily limit the meaning to what they would have first thought. But I think trying to keep our perspective... and. Sometimes I think we elevate details to the main point. I think we've got to make sure we don't do that. Um, there may be some things in this that they wouldn't have seen the first time that are really there. But, uh, you know, I don't know. At some points, we don't have that much to go on. I mean, that, that should limit us somewhat as well. You know, we can say some things that are true... Uh, perhaps, but trying to reason from that to saying, okay, that's what this is. So there are times when I feel pretty inadequate in doing that. But I do appreciate when the vision is explained in the text. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Except for when it's explained, you still look at it. That happens. <laughs> The action continues. Um, what we have just seen in 8 through 11 is more like kind of the constant. Now there are actually some specific events that occur. Chapter 5, verses 1 to 4. I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a book written inside and on the back, sealed up with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the book and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on the earth or under the earth was able to open the book or to look into it. 
Then I began to weep greatly, because no one was found worthy to open the book or look into it. Alright, so in the throne occupant's right hand was this sealed up book. Now when you think of a book, don't think of a book in the format ours are. Their books were in the form of a what? Scroll. Scroll. And uh, when you see it being sealed up, I think you ought to imagine like sort of a sticker that, that binds the lip of the scroll to the scroll itself. Uh, you know, so you get this seal that keeps you from opening it. Now, it may be an actual practice that the seventh, seven seals are kind of successive. You can break a seal and open it part of the way, and then you've got another seal to open it some more, and so forth. But at any rate, this is a perfectly sealed book, written all uh, inside and on the back. They've taken full use of the space in the scroll, and it's in the hand of the one who sits on the throne. But then you see this strong angel with a loud voice. There's three times that we see strong angels in Revelation, and they have a reason for them. Here, a strong angel is going to have a good, booming voice. Because what's he doing? He's going all over in heaven and earth and looking, asking who can this. Yeah. Looking, challenging for somebody worthy to take this book and open it and reveal, perhaps execute its contents. And he goes everywhere. Heaven, earth, under the earth? And who does he find in these four verses? No one. Now that must be quite a book. Because that means that not even the elders, not even the four living creatures, not even the strong angel himself, not even Michael, the archangel, we know from other passages and so forth. No one, there's not a single soul. How does that make John feel? Weeps. You know, have you ever been at a movie and you, you actually almost felt like you were a participant? You started crying when bad things happened and so forth. It's got, John's into this. He's a, he, he lives this. So he's crying. Because it means that, you know, whatever's in this book isn't going to be revealed. Perhaps God's plan for the universe or whatever is going to be frustrated. I mean, you know, they've looked everywhere. And no one can be found. This is a really, uh, you know, sad moment in the book. Comments and thoughts on these four verses. It's interesting that he was that sad without knowing the contents of the book. But he knew something of the fact that it was God's will. And, and just the fact that he expresses sorrow that God's will isn't being disclosed. So something about John's heart. That's right, and he knows they're hunting for somebody to do it. So obviously they need somebody and they can't find anyone. Yeah, but that's right. Maybe it speaks even to the, I don't know, I mean, you know, it was, these weren't isolated events. I mean, when John had saw the first couple of scenes, uh, his emotions obviously would be heightened. That, uh, you know, just going back to the picture in the first chapter, man, everything after that is going to be, you're going to be on pins and needles, I think. Yeah, yeah this is, this, you'd be very involved in this if you were John. I guess you'd say he might not have been so emotional about it had he not had six, you know, previous scenes. Yes. Five to seven. But one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has prevailed to open the scroll and loose its seven seals. And they looked, and behold, 
In the midst of the throne, and of the four living creatures, and in the midst of the elders stood a lamb, as though it had been slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. Then he came and took the scroll out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. So John is talked to by various people during this book. Here it's one of the uh, 24 elders that tells John, don't weep. Behold, there's this lion that has overcome and is going to be able to open the book and its seals. Now, what do we know about the lion? Reference to Jesus. Yes, it is. Strong. He's, yeah, lion is strong. What does it say about the lion? And, yeah, he's that. He's from, the tribe of Judah. he's from the tribe of Judah. And he's the root of David. Now from the tribe of Judah, we understand that David was from the tribe of Judah, that the Messiah was to come from Judah, and actually Jesus did. That was his lineage. The fact that he's the root of David is, is interesting. This is not the only passage that says that. But you would almost have thought of Jesus as being the outgrowth. But he's the root as well. Jesus is the one that gave rise to David and sprang from David. It's almost like Jesus questioning, how can David's son be David's Lord? Well, he was both God and man. So he's both the root and the shoot of David. But, but when John actually turns and looks to see the lion... What does he see? He sees a slain lamb. That's a rather interesting thing. Doesn't look too much like a lion. However, the idea of the lamb being slain reminds you of sacrifice. And I think that's the point of him being a slain lamb. That's what David actually, or John actually sees. He sees a lamb as if it had been slain, but it's standing. So clearly it's not still dead. And it has seven horns. Uh, you know, what would the horn on an animal do for it? Protect it. Gives it power. So he's got complete power. Seven horns. Seven eyes. Complete vision. And uh, he comes and takes the book out of the hand who, who sat on the throne. Uh, that would have been a dramatic moment. After they've looked everywhere to find someone who can, he comes and does it. Now, we've had promises to overcomers in each of those churches, but verse 5, the, the true, almost the prototype of an overcomer is Jesus. I'm wondering, you don't have to follow me on this, I don't know this for sure, but I'm wondering if we're seeing a vision more or less of what happens when Jesus ascends back to heaven and he comes and he's able to take the book. He has overcome. He's been victorious in his mission and now he's worthy to do this. That kind of connects with what I was thinking. Why couldn't John have found Jesus when he was looking for someone to open the book? Because he wasn't there yet? I think perhaps that's the case. I think this is I, I think this is almost maybe a, a, for, for what they're trying to show John, kind of a flashback. Uh, to show, and it, what it really does is it, it shows Jesus is unique. There's no one else that could have been found. Eric. Uh, I'm confused. Because it says that in, 
In verse 6 it says, In the midst of the throne of the four living blah, 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 was a lamb, and then the lamb came and took the scroll from the guy who was in the throne. How many thrones are there? One. So he leaves from the throne and goes back to the throne. So would that not be... Yeah. In the midst means around. Yeah, nearby. Nearby. Right? Yeah. My my translation says I saw between the throne with the four living creatures and the elders a lamb standing. So it means he was over there around the throne, but he actually came up to the one sitting on the throne and took the book. The, the, the way I picture it is you've got a throne and then there's a ring of elders and there's you know it's concentric rings and suddenly the lamb is in the middle of the ring. Next to the throne. Yeah. Is the way I picture in, in chapter 4, verse 6, the creatures were in the midst of the throne as well. So, so the they weren't on the throne, they were around it. Yeah. yeah. It's like you got the throne, four creatures, maybe at four corners, a ring of elders. You know, but, but that's just the way that I picture it. And, and I guess the, the reason I asked this question is when someone said, Where was Jesus? I thought that perhaps uh, Jesus and God being one, this was just some. I think we're seeing them in this picture separately. The one who sits oh, yeah. on the throne versus the lamb. Yeah. Right. But coming from one. I like it when we have questions and are thinking through what this would have looked like. I think that's good because it shows we're seeking to visualize it. We may not all have exactly the same mental picture. Obviously, when you're describing a picture in words, there are some unanswered questions and details. But trying to see it as best we can in our mind, I think is much better, very helpful to us. It is interesting that you know, the lion who has prevailed, you expect to see a picture of strength. I know. After that. And, and he sees a lamb which is a picture generally of weakness and having been slain, which is makes matters worse as far as a picture of strength. But but when we understand that that really is a picture of strength, that that sacrifice is what allowed Christ to prevail, to, and that is his strength. Amen. I wrote in my notes: the lion conquers by suffering as a slain lamb. That, that's that's exactly right. The strength of God is in humbling himself and serving. Eric. And, and I keep going back to the churches, because I, I, I don't want to have a disconnect between the letters to the churches and what's going on, but this Good. would say to the churches, if you overcome, no matter what happens, this is what will happen to you. Amen. Exactly. Good point. Okay. 8 to 14. When he had taken the book, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the lamb, having each one a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the book and to break its seal, for you were slain and purchased for God with your blood men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. And you have made them to be a kingdom and priests to our God and they will reign upon the earth. And I looked, and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne, the living creatures and the elders, and the number of them was myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. 
and every created thing which is in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all things in them I heard saying to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and dominion forever and ever. And the, and the four living creatures kept saying amen and the elders fell down and worshipped. We shouldn't lose our sense of wonder as we read these things. And I, I think sometimes our typical nature is to almost read things mechanically. Verse 8 is shocking. In the midst of this scene of splendor and wonder and awe, we see the prayers of the saints. They seem so out of place. You know, God's people crying to Him, being heard in the midst of all this praise and glorification by the greatest of all celestial creatures. And it's amazing when you stop and think about it that the Lord in His greatness and glory and majesty listens to the cry of His feeble people. He sees here the living creatures and the elders with a harp and golden bowls full of incense that represent the saints' prayers. Now, there is so much in this book, and you know, I don't know how far we'll really get, uh, hopefully, to at least at this point, where this will become relevant. But uh, don't forget about the golden bowls. They will reappear. And in general, when you read Revelation, realize this was, this was God's revelation. It's perfect. There's so many things in this. There's so much to see. See Revelation as a story in itself. Start looking for themes and motifs and things like that. But right here you see, God listens to the cry of his people, even in all the majesty that, that he uh, lives uh, in. And, and then you see these living creatures and, and elders praising uh, the Lamb, saying he's worthy to take the book and break its seals. Why? So he's worthy because of what he did for man. Isn't that amazing? That God honors the most, the one who did the most for us. You know, who died for us, who bought us with his blood, and who made something out of us. That's the one who deserves the praise in God's realm. Which is remarkable. And then he looked and he heard the voice of many angels, that's an understatement, around the throne. How many of them were there? Yes. The largest number in Greek was myriad. 10,000. So he multiplied that by itself. There were 10,000s of 10,000s. And that doesn't get them all. (laughs) There's thousands of thousands left over. Whoa! This is an enormous number of angels. Did you know there were that many? And what are they doing? They're saying with a loud voice, worthy. Can you imagine what that must have sounded like? And that would have been overwhelming. Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And it's not over. 
Then what does he hear? Every crazy thing. In heaven, on earth, under the earth, on the sea, and everything in them, to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and dominion forever and ever. I mean, it's everything. Praising and glorifying. And we conclude this whole section as we began it in 4.8 when we started describing the action with the four living creatures saying Amen and the elders falling down and worshiping. Wow. The Lord deserves praise and glory and honor. We need to praise Him recognizing that. And we need to be so much more in awe and, and just admiration of, of His greatness and who He is. Comments and questions? Any? Could you just clarify for, in verse 10 where it says, And thou hast made them to be a kingdom and priests to our God. And I take that to mean us. Yes. And they will reign upon the earth. What does that mean? Good question. I don't know that I have a definitive answer. There's several possibilities. There's a textual question there, and that varies it a little bit. Some of the manuscripts have they reign, present tense. Some of it has future, they will reign. So that's a debate. Is it saying that now with Christ we are actually the ones who reign on the earth? Or is it saying we will reign in the sense that we will be with Christ on his throne ruling over all things. I think either of those is a possibility. If it's the second, then I think he's using the earth in the sense of what will exist when we're in heaven with Christ. If he's saying right now, then he may be saying just we are the ones that share with Christ in his rule and reign as we're in the heavenly places with Christ now. So I don't have a definitive answer. Annie? I just wondered because I, I think this is one of the pivotal scriptures that is used by uh, Jehovah's Witnesses about it is used by various yes yes and you can understand that Um, you know many of these passages you have to interpret in the light of the overall context Eric you have your hand up Um, I've never studied Revelation it seems to me that when you start out in chapter 4, you, you've got these uh, this finite number of people worshiping God. But once you bring the Lamb in, then you have an infinite number of people worshiping. And their focus is on the fact that the Lamb has the power to grab freedom. So I'm wondering if this isn't also a way to allow them in that particular time to realize the importance of worshiping Jesus and what he says because of what he's allowed them to do. It certainly does do that. (laughs) You know, obviously they are uniting the Lamb and the throne occupant as worthy of worship, and we should too. We should honor the Son even as we honor the Father, James 5.23. So certainly we see that, and we have, you know, every reason to worship and exalt Jesus our Lamb. I think, you know, if you look at the figures, when you see this thing on the throne, obviously that's important, that's powerful, that's something worthy of worship. When you see a lamb that looks like it's slain, it wouldn't necessarily come to mind that that's worthy of worship also. But it is. And, you know, it's clearly, you know, verse 13, they're the same. They're both 
get the same amount of worship here. Exactly. So one which, you know, to all intents and purposes should be worship, yeah. But also to the one that most people think isn't worth worship. Excellent point. I agree. Other thoughts through chapter 5? I was just thinking about Philippians 2, you know, within this context. It's thinking what Jesus was willing to sacrifice of himself and, you know, what kind of glorification and honor he received because of it. You know, we see just a glimpse of that here. Well, and it shows you the point that you see in Philippians 2, God exalts the most the one who humbled himself the most. That is such an important principle of the Lord. Yes. Well, certainly those are true things. There's all kinds of reasons to praise, but one is the infinite wisdom and perfection of God's plan that sort of flabbergasts man in his wisdom because it just, you know, God chooses the weakest things and does such wonderful things out of them. Yes, Annie. Oh, I, you I was okay. just saying, okay. I, I couldn't hear a word you said. Okay. <laughs> Sorry about that. Just, but you heard from my comment what she said. So. Anything else through chapter 5? Jason? I think just one question that comes to my mind. You know, why didn't the one on the throne open the seals? Wasn't the way it worked. If the one on the throne is the one that sealed it. That, that, that's my sense. Mm-hmm. That's he was the origin of it. You don't open your own letter. You, know, <laughs> you, you provide it to somebody else to communicate your will. And isn't that the way God has set everything up? That Jesus was the one who came down on the mission here on the earth. And, and why didn't God the Father come Himself? Well, this is the way this works. You know, I mean, even in the creation, it looks to me like God is more the architect, the Father. And that the son is more the one who executed the work. And it just goes back, it just validates that all the things that Christ went through to those people to prove that he really was the son of God. Amen. One question in verse 6, you know, where the lamb has seven horns, seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God. You know, earlier we saw the seven spirits of God, we related that to the Holy Spirit. Do you think this is God? The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. I do. Yes, I do. I didn't catch that. That's okay. You don't need to. In in No, in chapter 5, verse 6, the seven spirits are a reference to the Holy Spirit, so you have the Holy Spirit involved in this as well. It's not just God, the Father, and Jesus. The Holy Spirit's there also in verse 6. Okay, at the end, I'm with you. Yeah. Six is a long verse. You have to read down to get to that. Yeah. It takes a little while. That's <laughs> a big word. Yeah. It is. That's a new one. It looks weird. You know, it's hard to hard to say that word. All right. That sets us up for chapter six. I mean, this all flows. Now he has the book. And what would you expect the next thing he's going to do with this book? We're going to open these seals and we're going to see what happens. And that's what you see. And, uh, wow, this is uh, amazing, exciting, and uh, a little tricky in some points. So, 
chapter 6, verses 1 through 8. I watched as the Lamb opened the first of the seven seals. Then I heard one of the four living creatures say, in a voice like thunder, Come, I looked, and there before me was a white horse. Its rider held a bow, and he was given a crown, and he rode out as on a conqueror bent on conquest. When the Lamb opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, Come. Then another horse came out, a fiery red one. Its rider was given power to take peace from the earth and make men slay each other. To him was given a large sword. When the Lamb opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, Come. I looked, and there before me was a black horse. Its rider was holding a pair of scales in his hand, and I heard what sounded like a voice among the four living creatures say, A quart of wheat for a day's wages, and three quarts of barley for a day's wages, and do not damage the oil and the wine. When the lamb opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, Come. I said, I looked, and there before me was a pale horse. Its rider was named Death. And Hades was following close behind him. They were given power over a fourth of the earth to kill by sword, famine, and plague, and all the wild beasts of the earth. Give me a moment here as we go through this. I want us to get off on the right track here, and this is a frequently misunderstood text. So we're going to go through a few steps, trying to uh, see what's happening. First of all, I'd like for us just to kind of overview and see the picture. You've got... Uh, the lamb opening the seal and one of the four living creatures saying to come. It's kind of like a stage direction. One of the four living creatures says come and next thing you see is what? Yeah, on a horse. Exactly. So you see the horse and this rider, in this case a white one, a bow and a crown, and the mission of this horse is to do what? Conquer. Conquer. Then, the second seal is broken by the Lamb. Second living creature says, come. And out comes a what? Red horse. And uh, its rider has a sword. And uh, as far as you can tell, the mission of the red horse and its rider is to do what? Create war. Create war. Take away peace, but that means to create war. Then you have the third seal broken, the third living creature saying, come, and out rides what? Black horse, who has a pair of scales, and clearly there's some sort of a famine. The price for certain um, foodstuffs is very high. And then the fourth uh, seal is broken, fourth living creature says, come, and what rides out? Death on an ashen horse. Depends on your translation. We really don't know what color that word is. Um, And uh, Hades is following along behind him. We'll talk about that more in a moment. And uh, this horse is able to do what? To kill... uh, uh, Yeah, to kill with a quarter of the people on the earth with sword, famine, disease, and wild beasts. We've got more to say about all of that, but that gets the picture before you. Before we go on, I want us to do something we'll have to do several times as we come to things in this book. We are assuming in Revelation a knowledge and understanding of Old Testament passages. We're drawing on figures that are used in the Old Testament, some of which, unfortunately, most Christians don't know much about. 
Look at Zechariah 1. Zechariah, in case you haven't looked at it recently, is the second of the last book in the Old Testament. So go to Matthew and move back a couple of pages. Zechariah 1. Zechariah is cool, and it reminds you a lot of Revelation. And uh, if we had time, we'd study Zechariah. But we don't, but I want you to look at this. You've got a series in the first six chapters of Zechariah of eight visions. We'll look at visions one and eight. They link together. In Zechariah 1.7, this vision comes to Zechariah, and look at what he sees in verse 8. I saw at night, and behold, a man was riding on a red horse. He was standing among the myrtle trees, which were in the ravine, with red sorrel and white horses behind him. Then I said, My Lord, what are these? And the angel who was speaking with me said to me, I will show you what these are. And the man who was standing among the myrtle trees answered and said, These are those whom the Lord has sent to patrol the earth. So they answered the angel of the Lord, who was standing among the myrtle trees, and said, We have patrolled the earth, and behold, all the earth is peaceful and quiet. Now this is part of the background. We're not done in this chapter yet, but this is part of the background of what we're looking at. Various colored horses. Can you tell already who these horses belong to? The Lord. Can you tell already what they do? Yes. And? By what they do, they do something, kind of an adjunct thing along with patrolling the earth. What do they give? A report. This is kind of like a reconnaissance mission that reports back to the Lord about what they find on the earth. In this case, what did they report? Everything's peaceful and quiet. Good report? Caught you. No. You would think it was, but it isn't. Look, verse 12. Then the angel of the Lord said, O Lord of hosts, how long will you have no compassion for Jerusalem and the cities of Judah, with which you have been indignant these seventy years? The Lord answered the angel who was speaking with me with gracious words, comforting words. So the angel who was speaking with me said to me, Proclaim, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I am exceedingly jealous for Jerusalem and Zion, but I am very angry with the nations who are at ease. For while I was only a little angry, they furthered the disaster. This is not good news because God is very angry with the nations that are calm and tranquil. They have abused his people and he's upset with them. And the fact that everything's calm and quiet means they're not being shaken like they need to be. So these are God's reconnaissance horses. They report in this case, calm and quiet. God's upset because he wants these nations to be punished for abusing his people. Now jump to the last of these visions, Zechariah 6, and we'll see the same thing, only we'll go a step further. Now I lifted up my eyes again and looked, and behold, four chariots were coming forth from between the two mountains, and the mountains were bronze mountains. With the first chariot were red horses, and with the second chariot black horses, and with the third chariot white horses, and with the fourth chariot strong dappled horses. Then I spoke to the angel who was speaking with me, saying, What are these, my lord? The angel replied to me, These are, The four spirits of heaven going forth after standing before the Lord of all the earth, with one of which the black horses are going forth in the north country, and the white ones go forth after them, while the dappled ones go forth to the south country. 
When the strong ones went out, they were eager to go to patrol the earth. And he said, go patrol the earth. So they patrolled the earth. Then notice verse 8. Then he cried out to me and spoke to me saying, see those who are going to the land of the north have, New American Standard reading, have appeased my wrath in the land of the north. Literally, according to the margin, have caused my spirit to rest in the land of the north. Now, here you have the horses again. They're patrolling the earth again, but they're doing one more thing. They are causing God's spirit to rest. Now, why was God's spirit not resting? Because of the peace of the other nations. Because of the peace of the other nations when they needed to be punished. So the New American Standard reading is interpretive, but it's correct. They are actually appeasing God's wrath by shaking things up, by punishing the nations in the north. Now, do you know the Old Testament well enough, especially Jeremiah? The nations from the north, really in this context in Zechariah, post-exilic prophet, the nations in the north refer to who? Babylon, Babylon, Persia, etc. And so they were the ones who had oppressed God's people. He's sending them up to those oppressing nations to punish them. So what I see is that these horses in Zechariah are God's horses executing judgment against those who persecute his people. I said that as concisely as I could figure out to say it. Did I say it too concisely? Do you get that? And do you see it from Zechariah? Anybody want to ask a question or make a comment? So you haven't tied it back to Revelation yet? Not yet. All right. <laughs> I'm with you. All right. Just so far in Zechariah, these colored horses are God's reconnaissance and judgment horses executing judgment against those who persecute his people. But that, I believe, is very much the background for what we're going to see or what we are seeing in chapter 6. Now, before I make application of that, I want to notice something else with you about Revelation 6, verses 1 through 8. Did you notice how these um, seals are described? They are described in incredibly parallel terms. There's this very, very structured approach to these first four seals. Every time, what's the first thing that happens? The lamb breaks the seal. The next thing that happens every time? The creature says come. The next thing that happens every time? A colored horse comes. And in most cases... The one who sat on the horse had something. What did he have in the white horse? A bow. bow. What did he have in the black horse? Scales. What did he have in the funny colored horse? The name death. Okay? Something was given almost every time. What was given to the rider of the white horse? What was given to the rider of the red horse? What was given to the rider of the funny colored horse? Authority, power, exactly. Every time they accomplish something, conquer, take peace away, bring famine, bring death. 
in two of the four cases, there's a limitation placed upon what they do. In the case of the black horse, do not damage the oil and the wine. In the case of the ashen horse, whatever, only a fourth were killed. Now, when I see this, here's the deduction I make. These horses should be seen as parallel in function. They are described in very parallel terms. I think there's enough information for us to avoid some of the mistakes that are often made in interpreting these horses. Very often, by all sorts of interpreters, these horses are going all over the place. You know, depending on who you read, um, the first horse is Jesus, the next couple of horses are the persecutions against the Christians, and the final horse is the judgment against the persecutors. No. That makes a nice story. But it, it doesn't deal with the parallel nature of the horses, and it doesn't fit them with the horses in Zechariah. Or some people say the first horse is the Antichrist, and the next horses are whatever. Well, that doesn't work. These are God's horses. So I think we're much better to say, with Zechariah, these horses are God's horses sent out to execute judgment, probably against those persecuting his people. We don't really know that yet. We will in a moment. But we're more or less looking at the weapons in God's arsenal. These are the instruments that the Lamb can use to judge those who dwell on the earth. Now, if you look at the details, what instruments does God have? Well, he's got a horse that can conquer. That's the first seal. He's got a horse that can make war. That's the second seal. He's got a horse that can bring famine. And we're going to talk about that one more. That's the third seal. And he's got a horse that can bring death. And we'll talk about that one more in a moment. That's the fourth seal. Now, aside from needing to give some more comments about the details of the third and fourth seal horse, do you have some questions and comments about what we've done so far with this? Eric? Well, following your line of thought, would that go back to the previous chapter when he said, I will come? Yes, I think the horses are a means by which he comes. Yes. So those horses aren't just uh, judging non-Christians, they're judging Christians. Who they judge, I don't think we really know yet, but I think we'll find out. Yeah. In your mind, you picture this, the seal's open, uh, 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 come, the horse comes riding in, gets the instructions, and the horse rides off. Yes. And then the next one. Comes in, right? So that's what I see. So uh, um, I'm just trying to visualize this. When they open the seal, what's the point of opening the seal to get the creature to say, "Come back"? Yeah, the opening of the seal allows the execution of the action written in the book. So this is like we open the seal. This is what's in the script, but what's in the script actually happens on the stage, and and actually happens in real life. Though I'm not necessarily thinking that God's got four actual literal colored horses riding around doing this. But this represents God's judgment forces that he uses on the earth. Really, to this point in the book, I don't think we know what these horses, how their actions are going to be applied. I'm not sure we know who are they conquering, who are they killing. But we already, before we see anything else, see God's got plenty of weapons. 
Yeah, to me, it, it's like it's the issuance of the orders, but you really don't know what those orders are. You see the results yes. of the orders. Yes. The way that they move. Yes. And what's said about them. Yes. Eric. And I think the important thing also is that Jesus is the one who's issuing those orders. God gave the orders, Jesus is the one who's actually making sure they... Which also contributes to the concept. These are the Lord's horses. These are what he's doing. Now, let me come to a couple of the specifics. And again, every once in a while, the, the things that bother me every once in a while are just, um, and that I get on a soapbox about, are that sometimes we just don't do a very careful job in our study and teaching. And I read some things, even from brethren who ought to know better, who just haven't been very careful about this. And so, uh, you know, I don't care you know, who says what or whatever, but when I'm you know, uh, more passionate about something. It's just that I think we need to really deal honestly with the text and not just make things up. And I think, I, I use these sometimes to say, that's what we need to do in our Bible study overall. When we come to this this third seal, we got this black horse with a pair of scales in his hand. A pair of scales in his hand. And I heard something like a voice in the center of the four living creatures saying, a quart of wheat for a denarius and three quarts of barley for a denarius and do not damage the oil and the wine. Now, it's amazing to me the kind of stories people have come up with on this one that I don't think fit this context or the overall teaching of the Bible. Now, clearly, it's expensive to buy wheat and barley. A denarius from two or three passages we know as a typical day's wages for a day's work. And a quart would be about as much as some one person would eat. So you have to work all day to buy enough wheat to feed a person. Or you work all day to, to, to buy enough barley to feed three. Barley's always been a cheaper grain than wheat in the Bible period. Maybe still is, I don't know. But the oil and the wine, no, they're, they're free. They're, you know, they're not more expensive. And so the question is, why? Well, think about it. When you look throughout the Old Testament especially, in the land of Palestine, there were three staple crops. I can multiply passages where it talks about the grain, the oil, and the wine. The grain, the oil, and the wine. Sometimes the grain, the oil, and the wine, the flocks, and the herds. Get the livestock in there. But it's the grain, the oil, and the wine. And, you know, where I live, it would be the coin, corn, the soybeans, and the wheat, if you have to put a third one in there. And uh, about 40 miles south of where I live, the corn, the soybeans, and the tobacco, probably not in that order. Uh, but everywhere you are, there's, there's two or three stable crops. In Palestine, it's the grain, the oil, and the wine. Now, what you've got here is expensive grain, but not expensive oil and wine. Now, the question is, why the difference? Now, remember, this is God's judgment. Think a little bit. What would cause grains to be high, but the oil and the wine not to be? And as you think about that, I want you to think about what does grain come from? 
Yeah, but what? Yeah, it comes from this plant. You know, think about a wheat plant, think about a barley plant. What did the uh, oil come from? Olive trees. Olive trees. What did the wine come from? Now, what would cause the grain to be high, but not the oil and the wine? Can you envision a scenario like that, Doc? There's too much precipitation causing the wheat to be destroyed, but the olives and grapes grow fine. Yes, although I think we ought to reverse that. Probably a drought, but but if you had a drought for a limited period of time, what would be affected? The immediate growth. Yeah, the grain doesn't have the kind of root system the olive tree has, and the, the grapevine has. And we know that. If you had a huge drought over several years, you'd kill the trees, too. But if you have a limited drought, you may have a time when the, when the grain just doesn't grow, because it doesn't have that kind of root system. It's an annual. But the trees are still okay, and the grapevines are still okay, because they're perennials. I think we're talking about a limited famine. Just like you have in the pale horse, or ashen horse, just a fourth are killed. It's a limited death. This is not everything yet. This is just what God can do. Now, the thing that is sometimes said that that bugs me is it's sometimes said that this is economic discrimination against the poor Christians because the oil and the wine were what the rich people had. The grain was what the poor people depended on. The Christians were the poor people. And so this is the rich non-Christians discriminating against the poor Christians. The thing it is, there's absolutely no evidence for that. None whatsoever. It's always the grain, the oil, and the wine. I don't know of anything that really proves that oil and wine were not used by poor people just like they were by rich people. It's like, that makes a great story, but there's just no confirmation of that. And this is not the persecution. This is God's horse. This is what God's doing. So, I think we've got a limited famine. We come to the fourth one, the ashen horse with the name death. And Hades is following after him. I really would like to know what that looked like, Hades following. I've almost envisioned, is it possible that Hades is like a pony following after this horse? Or is Hades following after on foot? I'm really not sure how to picture that. But you see authority over a fourth of the earth to kill with sword, famine, pestilence, and wild beasts. Now you really need to look there for a second at Ezekiel 14. This will kind of clinch, at least from my perspective, the argument I'm making about these horses. In Ezekiel 14, verse 21, For thus says the Lord God, How much more when I send my four severe judgments against Jerusalem? This is Ezekiel 14, 21. My four severe judgments against Jerusalem, sword, famine, wild beast, and plague. The same four, these were God's four severe judgments. So when he uses the same four in the ashen horse, I say these are God's judgments against a fourth of the men on the earth. So, in summary, we've got, we open the first four seals and we see God's four judgment forces, judgment forces, what he can do against those that he sends them out against. That was a lot of talking. Do you have comments and questions? seems like in Revelation there are temptations for us to see each thing as a successive and distinct event or thing. And it's almost like, I wonder if we shouldn't just see it as 
another way to emphasize the point that God is bringing judgment. And it's not so much distinctly these things, and this is a very limited uh, aspect of God's judgment. It's just a way of re-emphasizing the point. Let me, let me tell this in a different way so that you'll understand the point of God's coming kind of judgment. I think there is some truth to that. There is some story to this as well, but there's some truth to that. And we'll see a lot of repetitiveness and a lot of re-saying the same thing from a different perspective. So we will do that. One of the things I want to do with that section is just to show how, if we will be careful, and we will go back to the background passages and so forth, we can come up with a pretty clear understanding. This may not answer every question of God, but it's pretty clear. God's sending out his horses. He's sending out his judgments. Um, so just trying to understand this. Uh, so we're going to understand these four horses as accomplishing more or less the same thing as yes. what we see the four horses in Zechariah accomplish. Yes. And that is to bring judgment? Yes. Yes, okay. but here's what I'd really like for us to do. I'd like for us to think about this mostly as a story. Think of this as a movie. Just see it as a story in itself. Because I think that helps us, at least initially, see this better. I think we are too quick to always want to jump to what does this mean, what does that mean. And we never see the story for a story in itself. So I'd like for us to think about it that way a lot. And, uh, you know, if you want me to identify historically, you know, where the black horse entered in, I have no clue. I do agree these were the things shortly to take place. But I'm not so much trying to match up each detail with some historical detail. Yeah. If you look at it like a movie, if you're sitting there, you're these churches, you see God sending out people. And... Know you in a movie you see the general sending up you know a battle's coming you may not know exactly what it is yet but you know it's coming yes. and I think that's a, a, a good thing to do look at it like a movie yes. it helps a lot <laughs> no I, I brought some for you <laughs> Eric so following up on that thought that does not mean that all four horses are going to attack one person. Yes, I, I think at this point we really don't know what they're going to attack. We'll find out soon. Y'all look pretty good. Can I risk another section before I give you a break? Yeah, please. Okay. Suspense is killer. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it gets 